And whatever you grew up with, that creates your formula for safety. Even if hmm. you're in a dysfunctional environment that's not safe, you created a formula for safety. So X plus Y equals Z. So all of us grow up with these templates and we don't understand that we grow up with the templates because the brain is so efficient, just does the thing. So for men who grow up witnessing generations of men who don't open up, who don't trust people already have a foundational template that not trusting people keeps me safe. Mm. So we have to rewrite an entire template that's been written for generations. Hello again. My name is Benoit Kim and together we will be exploring the depth of the human mind. Today's conversation with a well-known men's coach and relationship expert hits really close to my heart. As I've been undergoing my own father-son relationship rupture and emotional turbulence for the past 15 months with my dad. This is the type of conversation that I wish I could share with my dad and many men out there. So I really hope you stay till the very end. Elise Michaels is a high-profile men's coach, trauma specialist, and the CEO of her coaching business. Expect to learn about why men don't ask for help, how men are suffering silently as a result, how to set healthy boundary setting, the psychology behind passive aggressive behavior, and much, much more. The discover more question of the episode is, what happens when you check all the boxes and still feel alone, purposeless, or lost? Let's get this started. Discover More, Discover More is, a show is a show for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Elise, welcome to Discover More. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Our society stigmatizes men for seeking help like nothing else. But every great champion needs a coach, as you said it beautifully. How do you approach someone who wants help, but is grappling with fear of stigma and judgment? Yeah, so a lot of men struggle with reaching out for help because it makes them feel weak. If they ask for it, they feel like everyone's going to see them as weak, and they feel like a failure. And in a man's eyes, the last thing he wants to be is a failure. But like you said, every great champion has a coach. It's easy for men to get a coach because they know that there's an action plan. They know that there's a step-by-step -step way to get a result. And so I think that's why a lot of men don't gravitate towards saying they want help because for them, help doesn't sound like an action plan. It sounds like you're weak, so you need somebody else to do the job for you. From my experience, both as a psychotherapist and also as a client, since I have a therapist of my own, I, what I learned from my years is that the biggest barrier to seeking help is accepting that you need help mm -hmm. because you can't seek help without internalizing that, wow, I'm not happy where I am in life. I'm not happy about the way I'm showing up. I'm not happy about the way that I'm performing at work relationally, emotionally. Uh, any thoughts there? Yeah, I love that you pointed that out because many men don't even realize, A, that they need help because they, they cut out that even being an option, but even more so, they've been trained to just kind of take life as it is, that they have to keep going, that they have to man up, just suck it up, don't be a pussy. <laughs> and so the way that they are suffering in life becomes their new normal. And why would they ask for help with something that seems normal, that they saw their dad go through, their grandpa go through, their friends are going through it? You know, there's a lot of friend groups that talk about you know, they're not happy at home. And so everything suddenly just becomes normal. So why would you ask for help? 
Then what are some of the through lines and maybe universal themes that you've seen in your men clients who came to you for help? Is it a lack of a stable, healthy male role models? Is it that they had some other trauma that impacted their ability to be attuned with themselves from within? Can you draw some through lines to draw a bigger picture? Yeah. So just like women, many men issues come from a lack of parental attention from either the mother or the father. A lot of the men that I work with come from single mother households where there was a lack of a, a male role model. Mm. So they don't necessarily know their their role in life or who to connect to or how to connect to other men, how to connect to themselves as a man. And that's not saying that the single moms are doing anything wrong, but a child needs to kind of see both as a form of what do I do. Mm. So when, let's say a man client comes to you, at least I need help. Finally, I realize that I'm not proud of who I am, but I'm doing great. I'm killing it at work, but I'm suffering everything else. I'm alone. I go home after making all the money to an empty, amazing penthouse. How do you reframe their fear of stigma? How do you reframe their hesitance in the beginning? Whenever someone's coming to me, I say I'm kind of like the Hail Mary. <laughs> like they've usually tried therapy. They've usually tried self-help books because someone who is, you know, men are very self-motivated. They like to work. They like to do things themselves. They like to solve problems. So for them to actually go to a person and say like, I need help, they have gotten to the point where they really can't figure it out. So it's not even that I have to change their opinion on the stigma about it, but it's they're so in lack of relationship skills to work on these other things outside of work that they don't know who to trust. And so it's in one of my videos that they've resonated and, and that's the little pocket that helps them start to believe that maybe I don't have to do everything by myself. I want to highlight your choice of word of trust or the lack thereof. This is an oversimplification and a blanket statement, of course, but if you really boil down and simplify most trauma, it's about lack thereof trust. Because what does it mean to be having a traumatic experience? As you experience something traumatic in your life, big T or small T, that you no longer feel safe. Relational betrayal, emotional betrayal, sex assault, whatever that may be. And that comes down to trust. You once trusted something that if I do this, then I could trust you, right? Being reciprocated. But then something happened and you realize, whoa, the trust I gave was not returned and I was betrayed. Would you say, like, what do you think about this current era where it's harder and harder to for especially for men to find people they trust to share their vulnerable inside because it's what if i open up but then i get betrayed right so you pointed out something so so important trust is is earned by safety and whatever you grew up with that creates your formula for safety even if hmm. you're in a dysfunctional environment that's not safe you created a formula for safety so x plus y equals z so all of us grow up with these templates and we don't understand that we grow up with the templates because the brain is so efficient, just does the thing. So for men who grow up witnessing generations of men who don't open up, who don't trust people already have a foundational template that not trusting people keeps me safe. Mm. So we have to rewrite an entire template that's been written for generations. Then how do you establish expectations? Because at least for psychotherapy, it's like an hour a week. And a lot of men clients come to me saying that, oh, you're not going to fix me in an hour. No shit. You're right. I'm not fixing you in an hour. There's 168 hours in a week. So how can you expect that one hour a week out of 168 hours to fix your life? You're right. What I tell them is I'm just creating a space to review and evaluate the archives of your behaviors and patterns. Are you proud of the way you're showing up? Are you happy? Right? What does success mean to you? 
So that's the that's what I do in the beginning to establish expectations because expectations are huge. Uh, what do you do in terms of making sure that the client knows what they're getting in for with you and what can they expect with their own process? With my clients, I love that you said that you you give them proper expectations. We have to give them expectations because expectations build trust, right? And And how I build expectations is I actually help them see their formula. So I help them understand why they are the way that they are. I help them understand how they can get to the next step and the expectations of what it's going to take to get to the next step. So I think whenever we lay something out clearly for someone, it helps to build that trust that it's not a cure, but there's a pathway, there's hope, there's something that they can lean on, and there's someone that they can lean on who has been through this before. So that's the space that I try to provide is like, you don't understand the pathway that you're about to go on, but I do, because I've been through this with so many other clients and I have the faith and I can help you and we're going to do it by X, Y, Z. So there's a new formula for them to follow that's different than their old one. Mm. It's I sense an underlying theme of like unlearning and deconditioning, right? Right. Like what got you that far? Like it might've worked up until a certain point, like trauma armor, right? When things happen to you, you have to build up calluses to protect yourself and there's nothing wrong with trauma armor. You need it to survive because the alternative might be suicide or death. But after a certain duration, you need to take off the trauma armor. But so many people, especially with men, veterans aside, they keep them on. Because as you said, that's a formula that's been instilled in their life. How do you know anything different, right? How, how do you take off your armor if you don't know you're not out of the war? Mm. And that's, that's the thing. We need to help people understand when they're in the war and when they're not in the war. How do you do that? You have to help them recognize what is safe versus what is not safe. And that includes learning a bunch of relational skill sets, understanding boundaries, needs. It's really about a self-discovery journey because the reason why a lot of people suffer is because they don't know how to ask for their own needs to be met. They don't understand themselves enough. They just kind of have this underlying expectation that other people are going to know. And then they do passive aggressive behaviors to try to get their needs met and get mad at the other person and think that they're super toxic. But actually, they just, you're not asking for your own needs to be met. And and that's what's causing you to, you know, cut people out or or, or block out love that you, could, you that you truly deserve. So you're saying that people don't mind read, but then without telling them what I need, I can't expect them to deliver what I'm asking for without me asking? Right. <laughs> yeah, obviously that's a joke, but uh, <laughs> my, some of my toughest clients are people with avoidant tendency, which translates to passive aggression. Anxious people are super passive aggressive also. The stereotypical nice guy does a lot of favors for people, but the favors are underlying contracts that says, oh, I, I do all this for you, so why didn't they do this for me? I'm never being a nice guy again, but he didn't actually ask for anything. People always say, oh, I shouldn't have to ask. Why not? <laughs> Why shouldn't you have to ask? Because if you never ask for something, you'll, you'll never know if you can get it. But you're not going to get it by doing something that you think that they want. If you love me, you should automatically know by default everything that I desire. What? I don't read minds. How, how can I possibly know that, right? And love is effortful. I think I love to maybe debunk some of the misbeliefs and fallacies around what love is. And I like to go back to some of the emotional work that you've done great work with in the past years. I think America or Western culture have this delusion that love is effortless. Like true love should be require zero effort, right? Love at first sight, 
predestined soulmates that I think is just a horrible idea because soulmates indicate that there's no ownership. You just have to live your life and something magically happens. If there's predestined other half, that takes away your responsibility, right? So I think love is effortful. It's in proactive and active extensions of who you are, despite the circumstances. Just like I don't believe in unconditional love. Love is love. Who cares if it's conditional? Because that's effortful. But I think unconditional love can be redefined as despite the conditions at hand or circumstances, you're still choosing to be loving. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I love how you said you don't believe in soulmates because it absolves a person of responsibility or effort. I've never seen it that way. But when you say that, it, it does make a lot of sense. And I think that's also what some people see marriage contracts as. Mm. They, they do a lot of work up until they get engaged or get married. And then once they're in it, they're like, well, you should love me no matter what. <laughs> but who says? Because I didn't love you no matter what actually before we got married, right? There mm. were standards. There were expectations that we both did before that. And I think that people let down their effort when they get married or or when they think that someone's their soulmate and they stop trying, like you said, but loving someone is continuous effort of upholding the standard for you and for them. Oh, beautifully said. And a, a Christian marriage counselor, I think she said this, where in marriage or any long-term committed relationship, by not actively moving closer to your partner, by default, you're drifting away. Mm-hmm. Well, it's same as in business, right? If you're not growing, you're dying. So I think if you're not growing in a relationship, you're also dying. And, and that just includes for yourself. Like you have to keep working on yourself. People so, sometimes also do this where they just want to make their partner so happy. So they change themselves to make their mm. partner happy. And then they forget themselves. They lose themselves. And then their partner by default is not happy because you've become a clone maybe of them. And you've lost all your polarity. You've lost all your interest. You've lost the thing that gave you life in the relationship. And then you get resentful. And it's just this, this whole conundrum. And you lost that oomph that attracted your partner in the first place right. by conforming what you think the other person wants. Wow. Uh, what a great conversation so far. <laughs> like, What are some of the most commonly seen struggles and emotional challenges that you've seen in hosts of clients who've worked in the last years? And depend, like, this is a vast question, so feel free to go where you feel called to. And afterwards, I'd love to zoom in on one or two of them. The most problems I witness with the men I work with is really in relationships. Like I'm not a relationship coach, but that's what a lot of my content does speak about because men, they know how to work. They know how to work hard. They're usually gravitating towards solving problems. So mm. business does very well for them. But it's the relationship skill sets that are really placed on, on women and rejected for men because they, they are taught to reject those parts of themselves. So I see that a lot. And then also men who feel very stuck. They're not sure what the next step is because they've already accomplished mm. the business goal. And they're like, oh my God, now that I'm at the top of the mountain, I don't know what's next for me. Mm. And, and when they're faced with that, they lose their purpose, their passion, and they feel disconnected from themselves and from society. That hits a core with me because as I briefly share with you on my relational journey with my fiance, aside from you know healing through my sexual trauma that I shared on the podcast before, what I realized is it's almost like I, I I used to go on a lot of dates, right? I used to watch like pickup videos in colleges to be to art of pickup. That was a trend a while back. So I realized I know how to master the first date, the second date, third date until I get what I want, right? But then in terms of relationally, in a committed container, 
I was going through my metaphorical playbook and I flipped through a brand new page and a brand new chapter and there was nothing written on it because I've never gone that far before. But I think my difference is I'm very vocal about my needs are and I'm curious. So I would literally talk to every people that I respected relationally who's in a committed relationships, not just for show, but who I truly know who they are. I would ask them, what do I do in this scenario? If I feel the love, how can I tell my partner that I love them? Because that fear. But I relate because business or life, we tend to go with or default or resort to pattern recognition. But then pattern recognition is flawed because if you haven't done it before, there is no pattern to recognize with. Well, or you gravitate towards the only patterns that you have witnessed. Mm. So subconsciously, that's how we get in relationships that end up mirroring our parents or end up mirroring our celebrity friends that if that's the only thing that we know, how could we have anything else? So you have to like wake up in your relationships to say, what are the patterns that I'm gravitating towards? So I can either change them or avoid them for the next time. We're always making a choice or a decision by not making a choice to change. You're changing regardless. So isn't it better to make the choice that you want to make, despite the fear, despite the hesitations, despite, and it reminds me of a Eleanor Roosevelt's quote, everything you desire is on the other side of fear. Yeah. And I feel like that's the exact work that you're working towards as your mission statements. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. That's actually one of the first questions I ask my clients. Like in our very first call, I say, you know, you have to be willing to give something up in mm. order to get what you want. And are you willing because the thing that you have to give up is yourself. Because all throughout your life, all the patterns that you've accumulated, all the beliefs you've accumulated, they've gotten you here and you've created a self-identity around all of these beliefs, all of these behavior patterns. So in order to become a new person, you have to be willing to give up the identity you've created. And that's the hardest part of healing because people, when they don't know who they are anymore, freak out right? I, I don't want to go to that thing because I know who I am in this container, even if, even if I'm suffering. So for them to make that commitment, they have to be really ready, right? Mm -hmm. I say you kind of have to go through metaphorical death in order to get what you want. It's like the, it's almost like a lot of people because of the comfort and fear, which is very normal, right? Fear is the primary emotions that humans are born with, evolutionally speaking. It's almost like the idea that I'd rather deal with the monsters that I'm familiar with then unlocking new levels and tackling the new monster, even though I'm going to level up. And people are more aware than they think. Yeah. And that's so funny that you use that reference because I also say that to my clients. It's like you're in you're in a video game because sometimes they'll they'll solve a problem, right, in session. And then the next week they'll be like, well, I got sad again. So like, when am I ever going to get better? When am I going to get over this? You know, I thought I was healed. And I'm like, listen, every new level has a new devil and you're not failing just because you feel sad again like you are up leveling every time like it's a video game you've you passed the last level now you got to go to the next one and you have to acknowledge and realize that you should be proud of that that you're gaining strength as you go you're not becoming weaker like you're recognizing new problems and you're solving those as well it's like reframing suffering as growing pain mm -hmm. that's why i tell my clients too that oh we had a rough session good that's growing pain of course, based on the rapport, you don't say, good, you're suffering needlessly, <laughs> but it's generally you're growing. And just like, I mean, I've gone through growth sprouts. I think I was 15. I went from like 5'6 to 5'11 in one summer, and my knees were hurting really badly, and they're physically growing pain. But I think emotionally and mentally and spiritually, 
growing pain is even more rewarding if you choose to move through it because the only way is through. Yeah. So let's go into some of that. Uh, you talked about the most commonly reported concerns or challenges with your clients or relationships, even though you're not a relationship coach. But I think relationship is probably the biggest domain and pillar within the umbrella of life. I love relationships as a psychotherapist. That's my favorite topic, right? Because I think no other container reveals more about the oneself. How you deal with others is a reflection of how you deal with yourself. Like if you don't know how to love yourself, how to be compassionate toward yourself, how to be self-gracious, it's going to be hard to receive that love and also love others in a non-passive aggressive way. Um, can you, I would love for you to highlight some of the most commonly seen relationship struggles and fear with your clients. And I want to put that on a messaging board because if your main clients are suffering through them, I'm sure my main clients are going through something similarly. That means other men in the world are also going through as well. Absolutely. Well, so many men that I work with, they have gotten themselves in relationships that are not reciprocal, where they either do a lot of things for their spouse that's not in return, or their spouse is constantly criticizing, constantly criticizing, not really appreciating, um, and they shut down. So the men don't know how to ask for their needs. They don't know how to set boundaries, and they don't feel appreciated. So they shut down, and then the relationships are no longer intimate. I know I'm kind of going off and do many different channels, but I'm sure a lot of men can relate to this as they're listening. It's, um, you know, they, they men deeply desire to be loved. They, they are like so loving. That's mm -hmm. one of the most surprising things that I've found um, about men is, is how affectionate they are and how considerate and caring just just on such an emotional level. And, and they really want to find that person that they can show that to because they don't feel like they can open up. Like they, they don't talk to their spouses about their feelings. They don't show emotions. They don't really, they're just operating with their spouse as like a separate being almost. Hmm. It's like viewing their relationship as like a business operation. You're compartmentalizing different aspects of yourself. So is it true with the most common trope online that men are afraid of intimacy and men don't want intimacy? Can you you know, feel free to go deep and because we both know that's not true. But I'd love for you to really speak down on a, you know, per your experiences, your expertise, because I think we have to destroy the false ideals about what men are. Because if you subscribe to a certain false ideal, everything you believe or create on top of it is false. So I'd love to really go deep into the context. I would say men want nothing more in the world than intimacy and cool. intimacy being a deep connection with another person not just sex, but it's the little things. It's the way that we connect. It's the way that we are seen. Men don't feel seen. They feel like they're an island. They feel like they have to do everything for everyone else in order to get some attention back. Mm -hmm. And some men pride themselves on that, which is fine for them. But on the inside, they also too want to be loved. They really want to be loved. Mm. I mean, it's even go all the way back to like attachment style, right? I mean, of course, it's the theory and theories are man-made and theory just a <laughs> way to describe human behavior. So it's not a Bible on an altar per se, but it makes sense because when you're first born, we have like we need social relationships. We need the most intimate connections who happen to be our caregiver to survive. So if that's deeply embedded into our DNA, evolutionarily, of course it makes sense men want an intimate relationship with another human being. Sex is just a cherry on top, right? But like without that emotional intimacy, sex is not the same. And it's a, it's a cliche, it's not our ideas. 
But I just really want to drive that message home because I think we really have to destroy the false belief that men are afraid and they don't want intimacy. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that they are afraid because they don't necessarily know what true intimacy is. And that's not their fault because, like you said, we are born into relationship, all of us. And everybody's like, you have to be self-sufficient. You have to love yourself first. But we are literally born into relationship. We're not born self-sufficient. Human babies are the most useless things that, you know, are born. (laughs) Like, we literally would just die. We would just die without our parents. And that requires a certain amount of effort and love. And it's, it's been shown that little boys are actually even treated differently than daughters. Like, they are, you know, taught to be tougher, taught to kind of reject any emotional outbursts or, you know, they're not nurtured. So when a, a young boy grows up into a man and he's trying to explore what intimacy is and he gets shown a different method than women do, women are, are nurtured and cuddled and hugged way more often. So it's like more open to them. So they don't seek out sex as much, right? Or mm. that's the stigma. And then they're like, all men want is sex. Maybe it's just because we've peer pressured men that that is their only form of obtaining intimacy. So they want intimacy. They don't know how to ask for it besides a physical contact. And you're speaking about how much of these men's behaviors are learned societally and how much of these are innate. A lot of what we are is what we learn in society because you look at different cultures, different, and I guess I'm speaking fully from an American perspective, right? Because in different cultures, they're totally more open with intimacy and they're super loving and they have different responses, like men feel differently about themselves, right? Mm-hmm. But in, in the U.S., you know, there's a stigma, and that stigma it carries through. So at least on your True Geordie podcast interview in London, you talked about there is no such thing as toxic masculinity, but what is toxic to masculinity? I love that distinction. Why is this such an important distinction to make, especially now? Because whenever we grow up with a belief system that something we cannot change makes us inherently bad or inherently wrong, we reject ourselves and we don't blossom. We don't, we don't grow. We, we feel hopeless. So if we're out here telling all men that they're just pieces of crap, they're toxic, also what you expect of people is what you create, right? It's the world you create. You, you don't help people by hating them. I would even say, and maybe you won't want this on the podcast, but I would even say it's kind of foundational like sexism or, or racism, right? Like what we are creating these expectations of people like this is how they're going to be. And then we have a stigma about them mm. and then we judge them that way. And then we treat them differently that way. Why all of a sudden are men toxic? Mm. Like when did that become the thing? And now every man you see, you're just going to like go to the other sidewalk because you're afraid based off of what? What pattern? And I think the underlying of that is like labeling culture that we have, right? Sure, mas- toxic masculinity is just one of the many terms that's thrown around. And U.S. also has the superpower to hijack terms and really distort the meaning <laughs> of that term, right? Holistic health, spirituality, just to name a couple. I'm saying that because I think no matter what domain we're talking about, once you label someone as something, right? So if I label something as, I don't know, just a blonde white girl, <laughs> I'm diminishing everything else beneath that, like all your experiences, your own journey, your expertise, your work, your multidimensionalness, because humans are not unidimensional. We're complex. Every single one of us is infinitely complex. That's why I love psychology. That's why I love therapy. But once you label something in a box, the complexity diminishes. And I think that's what you're speaking about. Yeah. And I would actually love to get your clinical opinion on, on the excessive need, desire to be labeled because I see it as very detrimental mm-hmm. because we're, we're trying to like 
the cry is to be acknowledged. The cry is to be seen. But in that cry to be seen and acknowledged, you almost outcast yourself because there's so many different types and labels right now that you almost make people an enemy because there's there's no commonality now. You've, you've erased the ability to connect even though you're trying to connect. And, and I feel like it's created this disparity between, you know, people are like, okay, they want to be that by themselves, not they want to be connected. Yeah. I'd love to get your opinion on that. So... And the quick response before answering your question is, I think the biggest irony of the labeling culture is forgetting the most important label of humanity. That's our species. If you want to label someone, label someone as a human being and then American. And then you can care about the left or right, leftist, rightist, whatever, right? But why are we forgetting the two most fundamental labels of humans and American? That doesn't make sense to me. But so... Simply put, oversimplified, my clinical opinion is that I think it comes down to like reductionism, which I think transcends beyond just what we're talking about scientifically, right? Oh, if I can explain this in hindsight, reality must be that simple. And I've been talking about, it's like a thought experiment. It's not fully flushed out yet, but I've been thinking a lot about this and talking to a few friends offline where I think we pride of ourselves in hindsight 2020, the most common thing. Everyone knows what that means, right? But if you look at psychologically, if you can say in hindsight 2020, this is what happened, X, Y, and Z last year, you're reinforcing your memory that that's what happened, X, Y, and Z in a very linear passion. But life is not linear. Just because we recall that event based on in hindsight perspective, that does not mean that's what that event happens. There's so many underlying forces, so many other circumstances we're overlooking. So I think humans are naturally gravitate towards simplicity. Because complexity requires thinking. Like Daniel Kogman, psychologist who won Nobel Prize, System 1, System 2, right? Most of us operate at a System 1, which is immediate. What do I do in this scenario? Oh, pattern recognitions. Based on the data of the past, this is what I should do. And my mentor always told me, should, it's just a word to make yourself feel bad. I encourage all my clients to burn that word from their vocabulary. But I think if you iterate that, I think that's what we get now is if I can put you in a box, it makes my life easier. Yeah. If I just view someone on the street as homelessness, oh, they're probably just a drug addict. They've never done anything in their life. They're worthless. Every homeless individuals I see, that's what I'm going to view them through. Then it negates my moral or responsibility to show compassion and empathy towards other people. Um, and then you extrapolate on a larger societal level. I feel like that's what this situation that we're in now. Well, I think just circling it back around to men, I think it also, it, it's confusing for both men and women when we're like, okay, but now there's all these labels and new labels come with new sets of rules. So who am I as a man? Who am I as a woman? And now I've got to like reframe and it's, it's repurposing your identity without you having asked, right? Like, mm. so it's, it's almost like I can see why people are getting so upset and I'm just realizing this now. It's kind of like taking away your sovereignty to choose who you are because somebody else is now putting a label on you. Like I get um, some men in the comment sections that I see getting upset because you can't just say like I was born male or female anymore. You have to say I was born... See, I, don't, I don't use it, so I totally forgot. It yeah. starts with a C. Uh, cisgender male? Yeah, yeah. Like I have to say cisgender now. Like I was born a male and I choose to identify as a male and it's mm -hmm. like... We didn't ask for all these labels, a lot of us. And so it's it's confusing. It's like, okay, who am I with these new labels? That It's not simple anymore, right? So it, it makes people angry and frustrated and confused. I love when you said new identity 
requires new rules or a new domain requires new rules. There is a lot there. And obviously this could be a six hour conversations. So when you assist in your men's client's journey to navigate their new paradigm of seeking help, maybe re redefining what intimacy is, redefining that seeking help is actually a reflection of empowerment, right? Because if you really think about what vulnerability is, it requires tremendous courage because of the trust that we started this conversation with. Like, what are some of the differences you've seen with your main clients, like before their journey? Not just to highlight, oh, because of you, they're this brand new versions, but more about the fact that like the set of the old rules they navigated versus the set of new rules they've navigated through your work. Yeah. So I, I love that. And my client journeys are the, the best things about what I do, right? I love seeing someone go from here to here. And it really is about the trust in themselves transforms their whole entire being. Mm -hmm. Because when people are afraid to be vulnerable, it's really just a lack of trust in self. They don't know if they're actually going to be able to be safe in a situation with someone else if they mm. reveal part of themselves. And so when you can teach them how to trust themselves, they know how to set boundaries now, they know how to state their needs, and also helping them um, re-identify the outcome. If that person responds badly, it doesn't mean you're bad or you've done anything wrong. And that's what a lot of men identify vulnerability with, like, oh, I, I opened up to my girl once and she just rejected me or ghosted me or, or left me. And then they take that on as, I did something bad and, and no women want this. But really it's you were connected with a partner who was not in sync with being able to emotionally support you. Mm. That's not your fault. I mean, it's your responsibility to choose a different partner, but it doesn't mean you did anything wrong by opening up because there's many women, and I hope many women listening to this, who are willing to listen to their partner and support them. W women want a conscious partner who can actually open up to them and, and not give them the entire mental load of trying to figure out what they're going through. As you saw, I was like smiling involuntarily because I love your reframe and I think it's empowering it realizes, yes, there are people that are shitty out there. And yes, you don't reveal your social security number on the first day. <laughs> There's levels to trust, right? Of course. But it comes down to, I think, a stable sense of identity. Who am I in this ever-changing world? And is my foundation of who I am stable enough to support navigations in this like tready water, right? Because things are always changing. Like change is literally the only constant. Now, if you look at, I don't know too much about astrology or astrophysics, don't ask me any questions. What I do know is the planet Earth is quite literally spinning as we speak. We're not, we're, we're literally moving because our planet is moving. So if that is true on the most fundamental like gravitational level, I think you can extrapolate to emotions too, right? Like if you're not choosing to change, you're going to resort to like entropy decay into nothingness. And, but I really love your focus on, do you trust yourself that you will come out of this alive? Will you come out of this stronger, better, healthier, more intimate, being able to be more vulnerable? I just wanted to really highlight that and zoom in on what you just said. Yeah, thank you. Well, and it's, it's all about also giving them the proof from their own life. You've made it through every single moment in your life up to now, and you will make it through the next moments, but better because you'll be able to make more sovereign decisions. I also tell them, you know, right now, as long as you run away from your emotions, as long as you don't want to open up and share and be vulnerable, you're a slave to them. Mm. Because you think that you're controlling them, but you're so afraid to even acknowledge what they are, you're running, 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 running all the time. And that doesn't make a strong man. That's enough said. So speaking of running away, I enjoyed your men and workaholism series on social media. 
they're really, really well put. I could tell you put a lot of effort into them. Can you elaborate the relationship between men and their desire to escape and run away from their home life through work? Yeah. So like we've talked about a lot, if you don't know how to get your needs met, you don't know how to set boundaries, it can create a really chaotic home life where you feel criticized, you don't feel good. So you start to create a new formula. When I go home, it equals bad energy. When I go home, it equals I'm a failure. People don't like to feel bad. We run away from pain as opposed to running towards pleasure. So if they don't have the relation, relational skill set to fix those problems, they'll run towards the thing that gives them the immediate gratification, which is usually work where they're a manager or they, you know, you can work hard and do a good job and you see that immediate effort, right? You get a paycheck, you see a job done, you know, you fix a light bulb. It's there for you to say, you did a good job. So they're running towards something that makes them feel good because they don't know how to address what makes them feel bad. Mm. That reminds me of what Tony Robbins, I think he said this, where humans gravitate more towards uh, yeah. away from pain than towards pleasure. I want to ask you about that. So like, I thought about that a lot, where even in my life, I have cultivated practices. I've been meditating daily for four years now, right? Cultivated practices. When things are going well in my life, I sense myself a little bit more complacent, right? When things are going well, I tend to take a backseat. or like, oh, things are going well. I don't have to try as hard. And then conflicts happen in my relationship with my fiance. I'm not asking about the human <laughs> origins and our nature per se, but like, why do you think that's the case that we run faster away from pain than like towards pleasure? Biologically, running away from pain instead of towards pleasure keeps us safe. Oh, true. Right? But I love what you just brought up because so many people get to this. They're like, oh, it's so good right now. Something bad is going to have to happen soon. So we've created a formula where nothing can get too good. And then we will subconsciously create an argument. We will subconsciously destroy it. And I love that you brought this up because this is also what I teach my clients. Okay, now that you're in a good spot, we have to rewire the part of you that says it's going to get bad again. We have to rewire the part of you that says something bad has to happen. And we have to keep asking ourselves, okay, this is good. Show me how it gets to be better. Mm. It doesn't have to get bad again. It doesn't have to go downhill. The goal is to keep the momentum going, always to create some type of push. Because when you're just complacent, you've just crossed the line over your safety and you haven't gone into the realm of thrive. Mm. So then you're constantly just getting safe. Okay, I'm safe here, but then the line catches up. Okay, I need to run away again. And you're perpetually putting yourself in this hamster wheel of just always getting to the okay part. Mm -hmm. This is why you're a good men's coach because uh, even Josh and I, we talked about this where Men's coach, you know, like she only works with men. Interest. All right. Uh, that's why I wanted to have you on and go deeper into your topical expertise. But like your ability to reframe like complex idea in a simple, understandable form that men's brains are used to, it's very powerful. Like it clicks. I was like, oh, holy shit. That's an amazing reframe. Do it makes me so happy. Yeah. No, seriously. Because I was like, yeah, you're <laughs> in a place of safety. You haven't arrived at the promised land of Thrive. And if you feel like the underlying expectation is because I feel good now, it's going to get bad, you will never get to the promised land, you know? And the underlying of that, correct me if I'm wrong, is self-sabotage tendencies. What have you seen with men's clients? Because one thing I caution against my clients, especially who are new to this healing journey, who are getting better, it ups and flows, right? You have your not so good days, you have your thriving days. But I think people expect, oh, once I'm getting better, it's always going to get better. It's this false idea that life is linear, which is not. 
Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it's kind of going back to the video game example that we gave. We have to teach ourselves that, you know, just because I feel good in the moment doesn't mean I stop trying to get to the next level. Mm. So now instead of looking at it as we're running away from pain, we look at it as we're running towards the pain, which becomes the pleasure, right? Like we kind of transform pain into pleasure in that way, because in a video game, you want to get to the next level. If you stay on the same level, it's boring, game over, done. Mm -hmm. So you can't just say, okay, I've ran away from the painful moment in my life and now I'm here and now I'm okay and now I'm good. Like this is this is good enough for me. You, you will feel complacent and you need something to challenge you. So you will self-sabotage. It's not a thing of like, oh, I hate myself, so I'm going to destroy this. It's simply that you have stopped the momentum of going forward. So you haven't met a new boss. And now you will start nitpicking at little things in your life, start maybe even destroying things in your life because your template says, I have to have something to work on. I have to be in chaos. I have to, you know, <laughs> I can't let it be too good. That's that's amazing. And even what you just said, there's like the evolutionary underpinning, which is like our brains are about 3 million years old, give or take. Very, very old, right? It's not about willpower. It's not about how strong you are. You could be the most disciplined. Jocko, for example, the guy was is a killer, Navy SEAL captain, right? He's about, I think he's in his 50s. His willpower will not offset and counter 3 million years old of his brain evolution. That, that's just a fact. And evolutionarily, our brains are innately a problem-solving machine, survival. That's why Homo sapiens survived. In the end, those didn't, and they had larger brains than we did. So what you're saying is, unless you're willing to reframe pain as pleasure, your, your brain will do its thing, because it's been doing that for three million years, it will do it for three more million years. Uh, would you say that's accurate? Right. Long story short, the brain is always looking for safety, which means it's always looking for problems to solve which means it will create problems to solve out of nothing if you do not continue forward and find your own problems. That is so true. Like even like a month ago, me and my fiance got into a, like a quarrel, right? But I think the difference is we've, we've had access to this knowing that that's actually a good sign because we're growing on the other end, growth mindset, right? Which I do want to ask you about like how much of growth mindset you incorporate into your work because I sense that. We did some reflections every single Sunday. We have a closing grows routine. We spent about 30 to an hour talk about the glows. What do we do well for each other as a partner? And this is like a brave space. We're encouraged to criticize each other through love, not just trying to destroy each other's self-esteem, right? And then grows is what can you do better? And through that reflection, we realized, oh, we had this bigger quarrel because for that month, everything was going really well. And we weren't actively trying to level up. Because four years in, six years in, I think quantity is the most used as metrics to determine how quality a relationship is. I know plenty of people in 10, 20 years of marriage, it's a, it's a horrible marriage because I know these people really well because <laughs> they don't really talk about real things. It's very superficial. And what, from what you just said, I realized, oh, that's because we weren't actively choosing our problems. So problems happened to us through this fight. And that's such a good reframe. And then they both feel like victims of circumstances they could have avoided instead of teaming together as partners to go after bigger problems. And I think that's also something just on a wider scale. We we don't push ourselves to grow as much anymore. Like we're kind of like where you're at is okay, which is like okay. But at the same time, you should have big goals and big dreams because the second that you stop growing yourself, 
you, you start dying, right? And then you look at little things like, what can I be an ambassador of? What can I, you know, what can I do without that? And without that in relationship, if you guys aren't pushing each other, like I see it as my role as a partner because I've worked with men, you know, so I know that they are wired to solve problems. And I'm a person who likes to dream big and I want to go after big things. I see it as my job to find a partner who also wants to dream big, but also as my job to make sure he doesn't stop, to make sure that he's not setting the bar lower than his actual potential. And as long as I can keep my partner doing that, we're not going to have time to focus on who forgot the bread at the store, you know? <laughs> like, it's just so minute. Like, why do we even fight about these things? We're focused on creating like a billion dollar company, right? Like, there's bigger things that you can do together, whatever that is. Like, we're focused on raising three children or we're focused on building a farm. Like, whatever it is for you, find that goal that you can work on together that that you guys feel bonded with and that you're not just getting in fights over these little things. So that's an interesting point because I think it's always a fine balance and balance looks different for everyone. The, I guess the surface question I want to ask is how do you find that balance between endless hustle versus finding what's a, what works for you based on your internal attunement? And what I, because a friend was asking me this, he's like, hey, you work really hard, you do a lot of things. Like, when is it enough? Because the goalpost always moves if you're not careful. And I always tell them, and I think after, you know, my meaningful milestones really in the podcast, they're asking me, oh, look at your social position and you're going up in the world. You know, what's next? And I told them it's actually not what's next. It's me fulfilling what I think I'm capable of based on the God-given potential I want to live out. But that requires a lot of awareness. And there's so many nuances, right? So for you, like, what can you say about encouraging men? Because there's nothing wrong with 9 to 5. I want to make that really clear. If you don't have any gravitational pull being a serial entrepreneur, yeah, right. don't be. Nobody ever said you need to. That's not the guaranteed pathway to happiness or success. But I think with a lot of figures, grind, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. And of course, there's a lot of validity to that. But I think it has to be, it depends on the context and who you are. Uh, I want to bring this back to you because I sense a lot of your main clients are successful business owners, entrepreneurs. How do you approach them and what are some of the conversations you have trying to tell them that, hey, it's not about finding a balance that works for everyone per se, but how do you approach that conversation? Right. And I'm glad that you said that because you, when you meet a man who's a hustler, you can never take his hustle away. Mm -hmm. And if you try, you're like guillotined, right? So I never approach my clients with like, listen, we got to take it back on the work front. What I usually say and what I've seen is that we're not drained from life because we're doing too much work per se, we're drained because we're not doing enough of what brings us joy, of what mm. lights us back up, right? We're just doing too many of the things that drain us, that take away our energy and our life force. Because a lot of men like to work, they like to get a job done, but if they're not like fulfilled in any other areas, of course, you're going to get burnt out. So it's not necessarily, I don't say pull back on this, I say add this in. Mm. 10 minutes of self-regulation in the morning before you do work emails, before you, you know, play with the kids, before you do anything, dedicate it to yourself because A, it helps you realize you are a priority. You're putting yourself back in and that's your lowest baseline level of stress that you have as opposed to the end of the day. So we're trying to get it back down to the baseline foundation of I'm safe, I'm relaxed. So then the rest of your day starts off in a much calmer position. And just adding those 10 minutes back in and we start to realize, okay, what do I actually like to do? What's fun for me? And once they start doing that, it expands the rest of their time and their energy to create balance that works for them. Beautiful reframe. It's not about 
subtracting necessarily or pulling back from what they want to do. It's about adding on the things that sparkle more joy. As I, as you were saying that, two people's name popped my mind. Uh, they're uh, business partners. Jonathan, one of my best friends. Shout out to you, JU, and Oliver, the corporate sponsor. Uh, I'm going to ask him to check out your content because I've been trying to... I'm, I'm that nagging friend. I'm that nagging. Yeah, try some mindfulness. Do a little bit of meditation. Get seven hours of sleep. Secure with them. Like, I believe in the power of micro habits. And obviously, these people are doing great things. They're hustling. They have a beautiful company and all that. But I, I really know that we have to find a balance that works for us. And balance is not about life-work balance. If you love what you do, who cares about that balance? Mm-hmm. But it's about balance of the inner peace and balance of our health and well-being. So I just want to really emphasize that. I wanted to bring in my name, call my friends. You wanted friends. to call them out? Yep. It's so funny. But I, I love that you said that, though, also because a lot of men don't do those things because they don't know what the payoff is. And they've tried it before, but they don't understand the purpose. And so I'm sure that you explain this to your clients. But the reason why I, I'm a coach as opposed to a therapist is there's a lot of rules around being a therapist. Oh, and, yeah. and it's it's non-directive, right? Like you hold the space, but you don't necessarily tell them, do this, do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm straightforward. I'm like, listen, you want to fix your avoidant attachment, you got to do X, Y, Z, right? Like this is the pathway. And I teach them the science behind why they're doing what they do. And what I've found from like looking at meditation or breath work or ice baths, all of it leads down to to self-regulation, which is simply allowing every single muscle in the body to relax so that your body identifies that with safety. Whenever your body is tense, some part of you doesn't feel safe. Your body is assessing the environment. So when I explain this to men, like, listen, it doesn't even matter if you do meditation or journaling or whatever, because you can meditate and your mind's still racing and your muscles are still tense and you're like, it didn't work for me Mm -hmm. because you didn't get the point. And they don't know the point. The point is you have to relax every single muscle in your body. And then you retrain your body and you retrain your mind. And once they understand, oh, this is a a system, this is the thing that I need to do, I just need to relax all my muscles, then it actually gets to their brain. And and like you said, then it becomes a thing that they can do. And they just choose the one that helps them do that the the easiest. Right. Oliver, I hope you're listening. Uh, Everything (laughs) Alice just said beautifully. Uh, What I did tell them is... I, ask, I like to ask this to my clients too, because my background is in psychedelic therapy, but even just regular therapy, it's like if there's an avenue and there's something that you can do that requires 2% of your effort that will directly increase the 98% of your life, would you do it? See, I also use mathematics and these concrete things for men because I know what works, <laughs> you right? You have to. Yeah, yeah. you have to because that's where you meet where they're at. And they're like, oh shit, yeah, 2%, 98%. Okay, that makes sense. But I think the barrier is they still don't see the ROI or the payout. Mm-hmm. Sure, you can say 2%, 98%, still very abstract and mathematically makes sense. But like, what's the H? Because like they want to optimize, optimize, get better, grow my right. company. What's the payout? So I think you, you said it really, really well. Yeah. Also, one thing I wanted to address that leads into this that we talked about earlier, when you're talking about the trauma armor mm-hmm. that we've had. Many men have developed skill sets that have actually helped them excel and exceed and are the reason why they are so successful. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to let that go because they're like, that's my edge. Mm. That's what made me so successful. That's what got me here. And I'm like, okay, but at this point, it's also destroying you. So I don't want to take that edge away. We want to add skill sets in so that you can control it so that it doesn't control you anymore. I want to focus on the word control because I think that's... (laughs) One of the biggest detriments of our men's biological structure is we just gravitate towards control because it's safety. It's an illusion of safety. 
if I can control this, then I'm in power. If I'm in power, then I'm safe. Even though the idea that controlling the sequences of life or what happens in life, it's a funny idea as a baseline because life is way larger than we are, period. How do you approach the topic of control? Because seeking help underlines relinquishing or letting go of control to a certain degree. That's such a good question. And I've had clients like this for <laughs> sure, that they almost want to tell me how the session's going to go. And then I ask them, okay, well, you, we've been doing it your way for X amount of years. How do you feel like this is working for you? And you have to present kind of cold, hard facts of like, listen, this formula is not working to get what you want. I have a different formula. We can always go back to this formula, right? And then also like just pointing out how the control is detrimental which usually means taking on more responsibility than is yours. Mm. Like they'll, they'll take on the emotional responsibility of their partner. I need to make them happy. I need to, I need to make my boss, you know, successful. And like just the things that are just not in your control or your responsibility. And so when you can change the things that you think you have responsibility over, I think it also lets you let go of control a little bit. Mm. That is true. Because if you want to control something, you got to do, you got to exert more effort. But if you're already struggling and drowning, you think putting on more weights right. and your drowning body is going to help you surface the water faster. Um, I want to follow up on what you said. You're very direct and you call people out. I'm very big on the art of confrontation. I call out my clients all the time. Of course, you know, in a more gentle, loving way and it requires rapport. And people know that. Are you calling them out out of ego because of the power dynamics? Or is it because you want to do what's best for them? from their goals, not just you, but from what they want, right? You're aligning with yourself with their goals. One thing I don't do though, is I don't give direct advices because I always tell them when you give your friends advice, doesn't matter how helpful you want to be and always depends on the person. But generally speaking, people don't really listen. I do a lot of motivational interviewing and probing and Socratic questionings, different approaches. All that to say, when you give that direct or when you point people to direct pathways to make themselves to achieve the next level, have you ever thought about the opportunity cost, what they might be missing out on if they get stuck on their own timeline without your support? Can they navigate that? Uh, because uh, you tend to, or some of the things you do from what it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, is to point them to the pathway. Does that question make sense? Right. So I'm glad that you said that because I should reframe the advice that I give them is all about the tool set and how to develop it. Mm. So I'm not telling them this, like you should break up with your girlfriend. I say, okay, <laughs> this, these are the relationship skill sets that are either going to work in this relationship or in a new one. It's not my job to decide what path they take, but I'm very direct about what they need to learn in order to get to the next level. It's like, you know, an NPC in a video game that gives you a little bit of advice for mm -hmm. wh what you need to do next. Yeah. That's kind of like what I see it as. And I love that you said, like, what are they going to do without you? It's my eternal goal to make sure they do not need to rely on me. My coaching is is short. It's three month period mm -hmm. to start um, because I try to give them as many skill sets as possible I guess you could say it's almost like a course, a live course or a live, you know, a class catered to them and their needs because my goal is is not to have them sit in front of me for for decades. I want them to learn the things because that's what I felt was missing. I didn't mm. want to run into the same patterns over and over and over again. I wanted someone to tell me what to do to stop doing that. That's so interesting you brought that up that you're coaching seasonal 
Oh man, I might get attacked by psychotherapists. But um, <laughs> so I've that that's a half joke. But I talk about this with a lot of friends, clients, and even therapists. I don't believe that therapy is a permanent solution because I believe that because crisis or every crisis presents an opportunity. Truly, if you think about what crisis means, I tell them that hey, you might need me for this season of crisis. And I'm going to expand your toolbox with as many tools that's evidence-based, similar to your approach. But then after a certain while, if you're ready to move on and flop your wings, to test out the tools that I taught you in your own accord without me, by all means, I encourage that. And then people ask, how do I know? When is it enough? You know when you know, right? Like if you're truly being truly honest about yourself and where you are with the skills that you've been given or you taught, you know when is it enough? Because I see so many of my clients who've been in therapy for 10 years, 15 years, and I ask them, are the initial problems that brought you to the container of therapy, are you still grappling with them? Of course, there are some serious like PTSD, complex things that require years, 100%. But maybe the more mundane challenges. And some of them tell me, yeah, I'm still working through similar situations. And I ask, how long have you seen your therapist for? And this is not to attack on any therapist by any means. They're like, oh, about six years, seven years. And I said, wait, but you're still working through the same challenges? They're like, yeah. I, I didn't tell them this, but in my mind, I'm thinking, uh, something is missing here because- That's so many people's stories. Yeah. But no, that was it. Because I, And I often think about what is the appropriate duration of therapy or life coaching? Is there such thing? Of course, it depends on the context who the people are. But I think about that a lot because I don't believe therapy is a permanent solution because if you always have the safety net to fall upon, you don't get a chance to test out by yourself. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would agree, right? Like I'm not a therapist and I, and I love therapists. It's not a battle between coaches and therapists, although some would say so, right? Yeah. There's different experts for different things, but I think it should be every coach's and every teacher's and every therapist's and every doctor's moral duty and responsibility to make sure that you don't have to see that person anymore because mm. they are self-sufficient, because they're relent, because they've learned how to build um, constants in other parts of their lives. Like one time I asked my therapist, I'm like, I feel so bad that I keep coming to see you every week. And she said, Elise, right now I'm your constant. You don't have anyone else mm. that you can go to or that you've been able to go to your whole life. So I realized she was a pillar of safety that I was holding on to. Mm. And when we discovered this, it's like, okay, how can I build up other pillars in my life to make sure that it's not like you abandon your therapist or your coach, <laughs> like as long as you keep growing and, and doing everything, but it's realizing that um, are you growing? Are you actually developing skill sets? If you're going over the same problems for 10 years, you're either avoiding responsibility and your therapist is not doing you a service by continuing to enable you to do that. Playing the victim for your whole life, everybody goes through problems. There are some terrible, terrible things that people have gone through, but there's an example for every terrible circumstance that someone has gone through where they've gotten to the other side and been successful and, and overcame. So if if them, why not you? Mm -hmm. Why are you taking 10 years mm. over the same problem? I don't think that's right. Mm. Post-traumatic growth, that's what that is, right? When you face and confront your trauma with skill sets and appropriate timeline that works for you, it's profound if you can achieve that. As we talked about, through my sexual trauma, I achieved post-traumatic growth through healing and I'm now engaged with my fiance, right? But that takes tremendous hard work. But I love the nuances you sp sprinkled in. Are you playing your part? Because it takes two people to dance mm -hmm. therapeutically. 
And man, I think that's such an important thing where just because you're paying someone for X amount of dollars for an hour a week or three months with your coaching, that doesn't negate your personality. You have to do the homework. You have to journal. You have to self-evaluate. You have to reflect. But I think people are like, well, but I am trying. How? I'm paying someone, an expert. That's not trying. You found an avenue for your help, but you got to exert the effort. 100%. It's like going to college and not doing the work. <laughs> you want to get a degree? What did you What did you actually learn? I'm not going to let a doctor operate on me just because they bought the Harvard certificate. It's like, that's why we go to school. Like you, you put the money in to say, I'm putting the flesh in the game. And if you put the flesh in the game, but you're not doing the work, it's not enough skin, right? It's not enough skin in the game. And for as much as I charge people... It's a hefty chunk of skin in the game to mm -hmm. A, ensure that they're going to do it. But if they don't do it, it's a waste of my time. I want to see you get results. So if you're coming for like two or three sessions and I'm like, why haven't you done this thing? Why mm. haven't you made progress? It's like, why, why would we keep coaching? Because mm. it's a waste of my time. Somebody else wants to be in the seat and wants to get better. So like, we got to do some self-reflection here. What do you actually want with your life? Mm. Yeah, I think doing the work sounds so cool and so beautiful. But doing the work, like that's what work means. It's effortful. I love that. I want to zoom in and follow up. Like I'm, I have a lot of interest in systems and like power dynamics, especially given you're a woman. Like, what is that like? Because my brain's going somewhere weird. Where I wonder the difference in power dynamics and even the culture within that container when maybe like a same sex, you know, like same sex therapist with the clients versus difference. But especially with a lot of your clients who are like business people who are very rigorous, intellectual, who are go-getters. Yeah, what is that power dynamics like and how do you approach that from the other side of from Because for therapists, we have to be hyper-cognizant of the power dynamics because you don't want to will them to do certain things just to appease us for the sake of. It's very interesting. Um, so I do only work with men clients. I worked with women like way in the beginning when I first started. And way in the beginning when I started, I like I said in the beginning, I, my intention was never to work with men, actually. It was actually to work with women, but men were the only ones asking me for help. And when they asked me for help, it was like people double my age with really high incomes. And I, in my mind, I'm like, I'm literally just starting off as a coach. I was like $100 a <laughs> session. You know, I don't know like necessarily what I'm doing yet. And how can I help someone who is so successful mm. and is a man? I don't know how to help you. But in my mind, I was like, okay. Like, let's, let's try it out because my goal is to help people solve their pain. So when someone comes into my session, I'm not being ignorant of who they are, like as in the power dynamics and stuff, but I try to cut all that stuff out of my mind and just focus on their problem. Focus on the systems that they're going through because I'm working with behavioral patterns and formulas and that's how I can help them best. It doesn't necessarily matter what their background is or who they are, mm. although that helps with the behavior patterns and the dynamics. Um, so in the beginning, I felt very insecure about the power dynamic mm. until I started to recognize that I could help them too. Mm. And now it's now it's normal for me to see people. I, I'm kind of like a, a high profile client coach, right? Like these people are $200 million companies plus, and they go through some big problems. And I can't start thinking about that because it's gonna make me lose my footing, actually. I have to be in the space of how do I help this person the best I can? So I don't ask them what their net worth is. I don't ask them what companies they work for. They end up telling me some stuff in session, mm -hmm. but I don't think you can think about the power dynamic. I think you can only think about the problem at hand. Mm. That's what's helped me best. That is interesting because you're almost like letting go of the false layers that are not relevant to your work. I'm eliminating the labels. Like you said, it's like, 
you know, like I'll have people of, of every color and like, while I have to acknowledge what they've been through, I can only assess the problem that they're coming to me with to help them out the best. Mm. I can't all of a sudden put all of my, you know, thoughts and my own, because that creates um, biases from my own personal perspective. And I have to try to be as stoic and, you know, non-biased as possible in these rooms. If one thing that this interview reveals is you're a great coach. Like oh, thank you. I mean, no, I could tell it's like competency speaks. And I also, I'm in the space where I interact with very high profile people and you give me 10 minutes, I can usually sense out the fluff, right? That's why I do my vetting process, discovery call questionnaire that you've did as well. But the best vetting is on the spot, on the interview. You give me an hour and a half, especially with my social sciences background, <laughs> unless you're a psychopath, right? Psychopathy, sociopathy, that's kind of hard to parse through. I'm not a human, you know, polygraph, but uh, <laughs> for most people, I can sense out the, you know, the fluff. I want to... So I, I share that because a lot of people today through social media, they only focus on the mounting success and they don't understand that the new levels do devils. Like the more successful you become based on whatever metrics you want to define that as, the amount of stress you have to go through is insane. Like I was just thinking about this, like I've achieved so much through podcasting this year in the last seven months. And I asked myself, was I happy about that? Yeah, sure. But I also thought about the amount of stress I had to go through. Business management, operations, new hiring, I had to fire someone. Like, it's insane. It's so stressful, right? But people only get caught up in the shining things. So I would love for you because you, work, you do work with high-profile clients. Can you paint a less rosier and more realistic picture of some of the realities that come with and some of the baggages their clients go through because it is at a certain height? Oh, yeah. And and I love that you brought this up. And I would like to give like a personal just because me and you are business owners as well. So I'll, I'll reflect on them and then kind of go into my if that's okay. Please. Um, so what you see with high profile men and, and CEOs of companies, right? You there's different levels to different people. There's this push where you should be vulnerable at work, where you should kind of like blur the lines and be honest and be authentic. But when you're a CEO of a company, you you cannot do that. You have to be the face of the company. You have to be the strength. And when most men are taught that they can't show emotions or whatever, so they go home and they can't show emotions. They're at work and they have to be this person. But at home, there's like a death in the family or they're going through divorce or there's infidelity. And so they're trying to manage these companies while everybody's attacking them and saying, you're the guy at the top. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. Not understanding that he's managing all of this stuff alone, like purely alone, doesn't trust anybody, can't trust anybody, can't show anything. It's easy for people who are not in that position to judge mm -hmm. and to say, oh, if I was there, I would have done it different. If you were someone who had gone through the exact same experiences, was in the exact same shoes, you would have done the exact same thing. So it's such a silent struggle to th that a lot of people just don't understand. They and, and they don't have a lot of friends. They can't trust a lot of people because the more successful you get, the more people want to utilize your time for the things that you have, not who you are. Mm. So like, yeah, I would love to go deep and be personal for a second and share some of the changes you've seen based on the change of the landscape and the level you've been navigating since when you first started versus where you are. And obviously mental health is a through line. Yeah, and, and I love that you brought that up. Also, there's a difference, I think, between people who are in the public eye versus people who are successful kind mm. of in the dark. Mm. Like we're successful more in social media's eyes, mm -hmm. right? 
we are seen, so we are successful. And so for my personal experience, you know, in the beginning when I only had like 3,000 followers, I was super honest and I did stuff from the gym and I was just like, what's up guys, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. And then as I had more videos go viral and the message started to become very niche and very clear and the audience started to grow, there's a lot of pressure to A, you know, these people are relying on you to make good content. So I used to just post whatever in whatever outfit (laughs) <laughs> and now now everything kind of has to be similar. It's the same style. And then mm. since I have, you know, I think I counted like over 10 videos that have over, over a million views, right? And I was like, I have to have this, I have this thing in my head where it has to be able to go viral. Like I want every piece of content to be viral worthy. And so like my ability to make content is a, a little more stressful. And I pride myself on not being a stressful person. But what I've really noticed recently is like when the eyes are on you, you do have to separate your, like, I'm still authentic, but I can't show myself always. Mm. It's like people are watching. Mm. And I feel like, especially as a female who's kind of representing men, I almost feel like this, everyone's looking at me to be the perfect ideal of what a woman is. Mm. And that's a little bit stressful because (laughs) I'm I'm doing it in my authentic way, but I'm like, I can't afford to mess up or I lose my whole career. Like, I can't afford to mess up. I can't afford to date the wrong person. I can't afford to say the wrong thing because people, I don't know if they do this to you, but like if I comment on an Instagram post or I like an Instagram post, I have people like see it, screenshot it and send it to me like, you liked this post. You know, you're supposed to be a men's coach. I'll say something that's not even directly related to like nothing negative. I'll be like, wow, they didn't even care. And they'll be like, how do you know? You didn't know their life. You call yourself a men's coach. And I'm like, dude, I, so I like, can't like certain posts. I just have to like scroll and hope the algorithm knows what I'm enjoying. So that's kind of like, that's kind of a a long story. But I think that a lot of other social media creators and people who are CEOs in the public eye can kind of understand that politic, it feels like politics. You are always being watched and and we're in cancel culture now and you like can't do anything wrong. You just can't afford it. So when it comes to men and their coach, comes to men and their therapist, like having that trust is so essential want to first make that very obvious on a social media level or on a very different level. You're way bigger. And this is where I think podcast is a healthy balance because like social media for podcasters is the avenue with the lowest ROI, the smallest conversion rate. But people don't know that, right? Like all these podcasters on social media with 100K, whatever. My question is, what's your engagement rates? Who's actually listening in? You're, you're following, you're liking, doesn't mean anything. How do I know that? Because I have a pretty big podcast. But if you look at my engagement on social media, it's, it's pretty good for my following. I'm, I'm, I was over 10K, but I fell off because I only post once a week. And a lot of people tell me, dude, that's a suicide move. I know, but I want to be a good human in real life. I've gone through the dopamine withdrawal. I've gone through the dopamine peak. I've gone through depression because of the virality and the, the loss of. So for all that reason, and plus, I just want to keep creating but all that to say, I, I relate because just last week at my work, I, w- I had a pretty stern conversation with a client. I work with forensic core mandated clients with severe mental illnesses, schizophrenia, things like that. And I had a very stern client. I, I called him out over the phone because he was flexing something that's very inappropriate. And we've addressed boundaries before. And I got reported by a colleague for engaging in what they deemed as clinically inappropriate conversation with my clients. And they were highly disturbed by my conversation without knowing who I am, because I'm, I'm new at this place. They don't know me. They don't know my qualifications. They don't know who I'm talking to. 
nor the content and the context we're speaking with. They heard the snapshot of our conversations and they were disturbed. That's the word they used. And they went to my boss, trying to reprimand me. I spent like hours talking about this with my, you know, my, with my boss. But I share that because I think people really need to understand that there's things more than what you're seeing. And like, let's extend a little bit more grace to other people because like everyone's going through things, you know? Like, why are we so judgmental? Why are we trying to be so fast by pointing fingers, you know? It's, I relate very deeply. And this is so recent right now. That, that's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It sets you off, right? Like, pointing fingers at someone else absolve, absolves us of our own personal responsibility and guilt. I'm sure you're not looking at anybody going, oh, they could be doing that better, mm -hmm. right? Like, when you're so focused on your own lane, there's a famous picture of Michael Phelps in a race against someone else. And, like, that person's looking at him and he's just going, Yep. right? It, I'm, and I've also gotten attacked by, not attacked, but by other men's coaches who tag my videos and like do a, do a video of their own. And they're like, she wants everybody to be a, a sissy guy and you need to do this. And I'm like, how ironic that I'm over here trying to help men with trauma mm. from committing suicide mm. to give them a safe space. And you would be attacking someone who's trying to help your gender. Mm. It doesn't make sense to me. I never go to anybody's content and just like tear them down unless I feel like they're being destructive. Mm. That's also a social media tactic where by tagging someone with a green screen, it gives you an algorithm boost. I'm sure you know ah, that. Yeah. I did not know. Yeah, I, I don't do that. But <laughs> I don't do, I don't know any of the algorithm boosts, honestly. Yeah, but that's why what they do. Because by tagging someone with a bigger presence that's trending, it automatically 10x their engagement. Really? Automatically. You don't have to say I'll anything. Have to do it. You just snapshot with a green screen, it goes way up. Wow. I'm serious. I just told a friend he did it instantly. Yeah, and I I, I, ha I, I have these know-hows because I've gone viral before. I'm just choosing not to do it because I want to create more in-person conversations, right? Anyway, I do want to revisit, I think, a really important topic that you talked about a few times, boundary setting. I think especially for men and women, but for men, when they think about boundaries, they think about building walls and fences around their house, which is their in internal landscape. Like, How do you contextualize boundary setting that's conducive for men's growth because too much boundary is trauma armor but too little boundary you're just inviting yourself for dangers and lack of safety uh, feel free to take this where you like yeah so i'm glad that you brought this up because a lot of people there's a lot of information about boundaries but i feel like everybody's confused about it mm -hmm. a lot of times when people are setting boundaries now they're actually giving ultimatums and they're bids for controlling the other person they're like you can't talk to me like that. You have to do this. And that's my boundary. That's not a boundary. <laughs> that's, a, that's a form of actually manipulation and control because you feel out of control. A boundary, a healthy boundary is creating a, a healthy bridge to connect. And it's a rule set for what you are going to do in response to a situation. That's how I frame it for my clients. I give mm. them, them back to personal responsibility. So let's say, you know, your mother-in-law keeps coming over to your house unannounced and it really makes you mad. And so instead of saying... <laughs> you can't come over to my house anymore. Like that's our rule. That's our boundary. Like you're trying to tell them what to do. They can break it. And then you get mad because they're breaking your boundary, right? They never have to follow your boundary. You have mm. to set a boundary that you have control over. So you have to say something like, we don't allow people at our house unannounced. And if it keeps happening, we're simply not going to be able to answer the door. Mm. And then you have to follow through on the boundary. That's something you have complete and total control over. You are reframing what the consequence is without trying to tell them what to do, make them feel like a bad person. And then they know when they show up and nobody answers the door, they can get mad about it. But you already stated the rules. 
Man, it's like uh, you're reading to my current clinical therapy concept with my therapist. <laughs> because as a Korean American, I I grew up in a single mom household. That's why I really like I really love the work you're doing because I sense a lot of your clients did grow up in a single parent. Right? It's obvious when you don't have a healthy role models, you don't know how to do adaptive things that's healthy for you. What I realize is like I love my mom to death. She's amazing. She tried her absolute best for me and my sister. But we grew up in an overly enmeshed family dynamic. And boundary setting for Koreans is such a taboo. It's, people are like, what? You're so selfish. Your mom did all these things for you. And now you want to draw boundaries? How dare you? They blood, sweat, and tears. I was like, mom, listen. This is her initial reactions. And she came around and she understood. Because I didn't talk to my family for like nine months as part of the boundary setting. And then my therapist called me out shout out to my therapist, that because I don't know how to create boundaries for the first time in my 30s, I have other practices, but I've never established boundaries with my family before because of the guilt, right? And my therapist told me that, hey, the first three months, your boundaries are great because you went from zero to one. But for the last six months, it became too rigid. It became ultimatum because I told my mom either this or that. And she called me out and I thought about it. I journal about it and I softened a little bit to make it where it works for me and also works for my mom and it's healthy for me. Now we've re-engaged, we're talking now. So therapy has been great, but I, I'm sharing my experiences because I really think we need to understand the context and what it looks like. And I think you sharing about this, what a healthy boundary setting looks like is very powerful because so many people don't know and there's so much nonsensical and misinformation out there it's um that's my forever struggle with like content creators because we need more influencers that's actually influencing in a healthy way but instagram is a company it's a business it's going to just maximize the eyeball grabbing attention grabbing tactics and unfortunately a lot of that is comprised of just garbage right and i think a lot of unfortunately the news that gets out there with things like boundaries, it's its a lot of victim mentality. It's like they should respect you and instead, you know, it's like they need to do everything for me because I deserve it and I'm born so I am worthy of everything. And I'm, I don't mean to be super inconsiderate. I'm probably going to get hate on so much hate <laughs> on this podcast, but it's for real. Like the world is not going to give you anything. You, you are not owed anything just because you are born. Everybody is owed, you know, safety, a health of... Uh, respect, but like also you should be working towards growing yourself and you should be working towards protecting yourself and understanding your own needs, understanding your own boundaries, because it's not that person's job to make you feel good. Mm -hmm. It's just not. There are some crappy people in the world and the the energy that you exert trying to get the world to understand you and accept you and love you, you could just be putting into yourself and understanding how to love and accept yourself and just gravitate towards the people who are naturally going to be more inclined to do that for you. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I'll take all the heat because I'm the one who had you on the podcast. But second, <laughs> you don't take any heat. I'm taking it. <laughs> but secondly, though, I think there's a difference between acknowledging that we are often victim to circumstances that's larger than us mm -hmm. and playing a victim card. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fundamental difference. Yeah. And we all of us are victims to situations and circumstances and this greater force of life. That is a fact. But not all of us have to play victim actively. Because when you, pay, when you play victim, you're giving away your power, voluntarily so. And that's on you, right? And it's a fine line because a lot of people don't have a village 
a lot of people don't have a tribe that supports them, the support system, therapists, family, friends. And also having friends does not mean having meaningful and socially healthy friends. Having social network is not the same thing as having meaningful social network, especially with the rise of superficiality because of social media, right? But I wanted to just add that to what you just said, uh, because there is a huge difference between playing a victim card, knowing versus acknowledging that you are a victim to the greater force of life often. Right. Yeah. I should clarify that when I say victim, I mean like absolving yourself of any responsibility in the situation. Like just saying it's up to them to take care of it. Mm-hmm. But really when you say it, it's up to me to do something about my situation, even though I didn't create the circumstances that could be totally awful and shit, mm-hmm. you at least give yourself the confidence that you need to say, I can get through this. Well, it's not your fault that something bad happened to you, but it is your responsibility to come out of it because it's your responsibility, it's your life, right? Right. The lion chases the antelope and it's kind of like the antelope staying there and saying, this lion shouldn't eat me. Well, why (sighs) should it not? You need to learn how to run. Yeah. Your passion comes through, your knowledge, expertise comes through and let the work speak for itself, right? Do you feel like, is there any other messages or things you haven't touched upon that you feel called to share? Uh, before I roll out the metaphorical red carpet for you. Nah, no, I'm just super grateful to be here and to be a person who's been trusted to be a voice for men. Um, I'm grateful for that every day. Working with men has been the best thing that's ever happened to me in my (laughs) life. And really, they're all helping make my dreams come true, right? Like, I know I talked about how kind of like difficult, maybe isolating and lonely it, it is sometimes, but I can't do anything else. Like, I have to be this person until I see it no longer resonating. This, this has been my life's work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, finding what you're good at, making money from what you're good at, and loving what you're good at. It's, I think that's the biggest genetic lottery. Like, man, it's a, I know people, but it, it truly is a deep privilege. I feel the exact same way, so I resonate deeply. With that being said, at least, where can people find you? Check out some of the master courses you created. Maybe they want to work with you, anything in between. Yeah, so I'm on all social media, uh, at least Michaels. I will not DM you for a reading. I have people that copy my <laughs> profile. So if you follow me and I message you, it's not me. I have to say that on every podcast. And yeah, we have a men's group that's just opened um, called Better Man. And uh, my goal is to make that a, a real movement for men that they can feel better so they can do better and be better for themselves, for their spouses, families, and communities. When you show up for yourself fully, you will show up for others fully. So yeah, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your thoughtfulness. I appreciate your expertise. And I appreciate you flying out to LA for the interview. And I really, really had a, yeah, this is an amazing conversation for me personally. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, thank you. To all the listeners, before we close out this week's episode, I want to ask you about one thing. The best free growth strategy for a podcast is sharing this, friend, sharing this episode with one friend. If you derive something more about from today's conversation with the amazing Elise, uh, it's free for you, invaluable for me. With that, I will link all of our information in the episode links below as always. And as always, I hope you choose curiosity and love over fear. And I hope to catch you in the next week's train of Discover More. Thank you for tuning in.